We are in Genesis 41, and this is Joseph's rise to power. This is when things start finally turning around for him. We are at the peak of the plot structure where you're beginning to see the resolution, and the resolution will come in two phases, actually three. Um, his rise to power, his saving of his family um, physically, and then his saving of his family in a spiritual forgiveness kind of a way. Um, by forgiving them what they had done. So chapter 41, verse 1, it says, At the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. Now, we left off last week with the idea that the cupbearer and the baker have a dream. Pharaoh, or sorry, Joseph interprets them. And then he says to the cupbearer, when you're lifted back up to your position of advisor, remember me. And it says the cupbearer forgot about him. And then when you get to chapter 41, verse 1, we're told two full years later. So two years, he's completely forgotten. And Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams. Now, remember, this is our third set of dreams. They, every single time, they've come in pairs of twos. And this time, we're coming to Pharaoh, and each person becomes more prominent. Joseph is just a keeper of livestock. The cupbearer is a higher position. The baker, and now we come to Pharaoh who's a much higher position with these dreams. In the first dream, he has a dream of seven cows. And the seven obviously stands for seven years. Cows were the most revered and worshipped animal in all of Egypt. Um, so worshipped that the, 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 the cow that they specifically worshipped was an apis bull. And an apis bull was so revered that they actually built palaces to the bull and people dedicated their entire life to serving this bull and feeding it and giving it cows and all this kind of stuff. And when they, the cow died or the bull died, they would actually mummify it. And some of the Egyptians actually killed themselves to serve the, the bull in the afterlife. And so the cow and the bull were very revered animals all throughout the ancient world. Um, and so this would represent the power and the might of Egypt. And so you have these seven fat, voluptuous cows, and then seven emaciated cows come along, and they eat and engulf the seven, but they don't gain any weight. And so he then goes, he wakes up very disturbed. I mean, if you saw seven cows like that eating others, that would be kind of disturbing. And he wakes up, and he goes back to sleep and has another dream. And this time he sees seven sheaves of grain, and then it is followed up by seven, like, nasty, nappy, wilting, disease grains that engulf the first seven, and they don't get any better. Grain was also what Egypt was known for. Egypt was considered the breadbasket of the ancient Near East, so much so that we, every time in the Bible there's a famine, people go to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt. And so <clears throat> this is one thing that they were known for. And so this would represent the provision, the wealth of Egypt as well. But it also specifically represents the fact that they're going to have a famine. And so he can't figure this dream out. Now, it's hard to say whether he's just really ignorant because we're kind of thinking like, wow, that's kind of easy. Yeah, after you've grown up in the church your entire life and heard this over and over and over again. So, but dreams are weird. And so he asked everybody to interpret the dream. 
And so a big part of chapter 41 is just the dream being given and the dream being told to people. And that repetition. And that repetition makes it important that the dream has an incredible importance, but at the same time, that nobody can figure it out. And so he goes to all of his advisors, including the cupbearer, because remember, he would be a part of this trying to figure out the dream. And nobody can give him an interpretation. Now, it's important to understand that the Hebrew word here does not mean that no one could give him an interpretation like, I don't know. The word has more the implication of he was not satisfied with anybody's answers. That they are giving answers, but they're just not vibing. They're not feeling right to him, whatever that means when you're just totally guessing. So they're probably making an attempt. Now, we already talked about this with Joseph's brothers, but this was something that you would actually go to school. You would get a master's in dream interpretation, okay? They would, people would dedicate their entire life to studying dreams, learning how to figure them out. They would do rituals. They would consult things. And yet, all of this scholarly learning from the intelligentia cannot figure out the meaning of this dream. And that's very important to understand that Egypt was like the Harvard of dream interpretation and, and dedication of years, and yet the intelligentia is completely failing, and their ability to give Pharaoh something that is satisfactory and the understanding. As at this point of total desperation that the cupbearer is like, hey, wait a minute, I remember this guy. He was able to interpret dreams. Now, Remember, this is incredibly significant because first, Joseph is a Semitic person, which the Egyptians already do not like foreigners. They're incredibly racist towards all foreigners. This is a Semitic person, which is like the least of all the foreigners. And he's in prison for accusation of something incredibly politically harmful or bad because Pharaoh knows the kind of people go to prison. And so he's committed some crime that has already been a crime against the state. Okay, He's not thinking like rapists or murder because those people would be dead. He's thinking somebody who's violated the state, opposed the state, a traitor or something. And so you're going to bring this Semitic dog into your presence as the Pharaoh who is the incarnation of the sun god Ra, and you're going to take the advice of somebody who's already in prison for some kind of crime against the state. That shows you the power and the influence of the cupbearer. It also, more importantly, shows the divine providence of God. Because this, there's just no way, no way this guy would bring him out. And so this is exactly the place that God wants him to be for the right moment to meet the Pharaoh. Now, they bring Joseph out, and they shave him, because he can't go in to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would be offended already that this guy is a dark-skinned Semitic person, let alone um, stinking and smelling and looking bad. Now, the Egyptians were known for being clean-shaven. They would shave almost all the hair in their body. and Now, that doesn't mean every single Egyptian, but the elite, the nobles. They would shave almost all the hair in their body, and they would draw their eyebrows back in and wear wigs and that kind of stuff. And we've seen enough movies and pictures to know that. <clears throat> so Joseph has to be cleaned and shaved. 
Now, the fact that it says that they only change his outer robes suggests that they're in a hurry, that they're not really taking the time to really groom him, but they're just trying to make him outwardly appear good. So just throw a bucket of water on him, shave his face really quick, give him a new robe, and spray a bunch of perfume. I don't know. So they bring him into the presence, and Pharaoh goes through the dream all over again and says that none of these men can do it. In verse 25, Joseph responds. This is his first opportunity to speak before the most powerful person in the world at this time in history. And it says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Both dreams of Pharaoh have the same meaning. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And notice that the first opportunity, he gives all credit to God. He makes it very clear that this comes from God. Not your gods. Not just that you slip into the afterlife through your unconscious dreams and happen to come out with something worthy. But God has specifically put this in your head to give you a warning. And he talks about what it is. The seven good cows and the seven good grains are the seven years of plenty, followed by the seven years of famine. And so the seven represents the completion, and Joseph says the fact that you had this dream twice means that it is definitely going to happen. It's going to happen quickly, and it's definitely going to happen. And so Pharaoh, now he says the dream was repeated because Pharaoh, the matter has been decided, decreed by God, and God will make it happen. And so this is, there's no way you can change it. That's the applications. It's happening quickly. It's definitely going to happen. And there is no changing this, period. And this is one of my favorite parts. So Joseph says, so now Pharaoh should look for a wise and discerning man and give him authority over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh should do this, and he should appoint officials throughout the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance, and they should gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. By Pharaoh's authority, they should store up the grain so the cities have food, and they should preserve it. This food should be held in storage for the land in preparation for the seven years of famine that will occur through the land of Egypt, and this way the land will survive the famine. So you should find somebody wise and discerning, wink, wink, hint, hint, okay? The only person who God is working through in order to give you the meaning of the dreams, maybe I'd be a good person. Now, don't take that in a prideful sense. Don't take that in an arrogant, I'm trying to climb the ladder sense. Take that in the sense that he knows exactly why he's here. It's been clearly revealed to him years ago that God was going to make him a ruler. And nothing that he has done has helped him climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. It's been 13 years of slavery and prison. So if this was just about his ambition, one or two things have come clear to him. One, he's not capable of doing it. Or two, God doesn't want him there. And so this isn't him promoting himself. This is someone who clearly knows where he belongs, what God has spoken to him, and he sees the hand of God working right now in this moment and realizes why he is 
where he is. Now, yes, that could be reading a lot into that, not knowing his thinking at this moment, this passage. But when you get to the end of the story, and two times clearly says that God brought me here so that I can save you and the world, shows that at this moment he knows exactly why he's here. It is not about his promotion. It's not about his power. It's about him saving people, and he sees that. And so this is not him saying, I want power. This is him saying, I get that I'm the right person that God has chosen to be here. Pick me. And this has become clear by the fact that I'm the only one that God has spoken the meaning of these dreams to. And so he reveals that. Now, you also know this is of God because you know that in the corporate world, most bosses, if you laid out the blueprints for success and you were just some low-level ding-dong in the company, so to speak, not that you are, but that's the way they view you, that they would be, thank you, have a nice day, close the door and go to the board and say, I just had a great idea. We should collect one-fifth of all the green. The fact that Pharaoh hears the idea and the planning and then does not take the credit for it, and then turns around and not only listens to this Semitic dog, but promotes him to the second most powerful position in all the world, says that this is definitely God. This is definitely God. And you should know that by now, after all these chapters of seeing how God has revealed himself and how he maps out the way that he works. This is from God putting him exactly where he needs to be. Now, one-fifth is a kind of a tax, but that's not that big of a deal. I mean, that's like a fraction of what the U.S. government taxes you. It's like 20%. That's the starting level. If you make more money, it goes up even higher. So a one-fifth tax on people and their grain is not that big of a deal. Most of the taxes in the ancient world were far less than what they are today. So... Now, granted, they don't have as many people as the nation of America, too. But um, So the reality is, this isn't a reasonable tax. And when that tax is going to give right back to you seven years later to help you survive the famine. So that's his plan. It's not going to overtax the people to the point that they're not going to survive the seven years of plenty. But it will enable everybody to survive for the next seven years in the time of the famine. So Pharaoh listens, and he puts him in the power of position authority. And notice he says, I will make you the chief or the commander over my house. Now, that's exactly the kind of position that Joseph had in Potiphar's house. But what's weird is when Joseph is given the signet ring and the gold necklace and the staff, it carries with it way more power than just being the person over Pharaoh's house. But if you do research into the Egyptian government, you will find that the commander over Pharaoh's house is just that, someone who only has responsibility over the house of Pharaoh. The kind of power that Joseph exercises is that of a visor, okay? The visor over the entire nation. Yet that doesn't seem to be the title that Pharaoh gives him. So, 
I was spending some time on this because these are one of those things that people come to in the Bible and they say, look, your Bible is not historically accurate and it's inconsistent. You can't trust it. But what's interesting is that remember this is being written by Jews, not Egyptians. And so the Jew is writing to a Jewish audience, not an Egyptian audience. And when you're in the Jewish land during the time of the kings, the commander over the house, house is not a literal house, but a metaphor for the entire nation. And so the commander over the house in the Israeli or Israel statehood carries with it the same power that the power of visor in Egypt carries, even though that title in Egypt does not mean the same thing, which means most likely the Jew who's writing this is using the title of visor, but putting it in the words that a Jew that he's writing to is going to understand that. So it'd be kind of like if I say, I'm teaching a bunch of little kids, and I say, hey, he's the pharaoh. And they're like, I don't know what a pharaoh is. And you say, well, it's like the president of the United States with a lot more power, or maybe a king. And so I don't use the title pharaoh. I use a title that they understand to try to communicate that. And it's exactly what this person does. So there is no inconsistency. It's just a matter of translation. You communicate with the words that we have in our culture to communicate what they're trying to communicate in their culture. And so he's appointed advisor. The only person who's more powerful than Joseph is Pharaoh, which means everyone and the entire nation is going to be subservient to Joseph and his authority, except for Pharaoh. That's great power. So this would be kind of like a prime minister without a Congress. <laughs> and so he has all the power that he wants. So he takes a signet ring, which would be some kind of a symbol that represents the authority of Pharaoh. I think we've seen enough movies to kind of know what that means. So everywhere he goes, it'll be obvious what power he has. And then eventually after he gains a reputation, nobody's going to question him anymore. And then notice that he's clothed. Once again, we see clothing coming back into the scene. The clothing that got him in trouble twice. But now it's not getting him in trouble. Now the clothing has been redeemed, so to speak. It's not going to hurt him. And then he puts a gold chain on his neck. Now, we don't know exactly what this gold chain means. Is it just a tribute, a mark of wealth to him? Does it signify power? We don't know exactly, but we do know that there are multiple Egyptian paintings found in archaeology where the pharaoh is putting gold necklaces on people. And so it seems to be at least some kind of a reward or some kind of an honoring thing. Does it represent his office? Don't know. Or it could just be a reward for figuring out the dreams and coming up with a good idea. Maybe so. So this would be like earning like the wreath of crown in the Olympics or something like that, or, or a gold medal or silver medal or something like that. And so some kind of reward. And so Pharaoh had him ride on the chariot used by his second command, and they cried out before him, kneel down. So they placed him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your permission, 
No one will move his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name um, Zephanath, uh, and he also gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, and priest of On, to be his wife. So Joseph took charge of all the land of Egypt. Now this is interesting. He is now marrying an Egyptian woman. And the Egyptian woman would be stealing his position of power. She would come from some noble family. And there still could be a chance that people would question, why is this Joseph there? But by marrying him into a noble family, it would be stealing his legitimacy. And the minute he has Egyptian kids, he is definitely sealed in his position and power. Now, God, Abraham and all of them have made it very clear that you really shouldn't be marrying outside of things. Now, what's interesting is that when we get to the law later, the law is going to make it very clear not to go back to Egypt for anything. But at the same time, Egyptian women have not been completely forbidden from marriage. And so there is a sense that God kind of doesn't want you to marry outside the Jewish nation, but remember the Jewish nation doesn't exist yet. There is a sense that their Egyptians are not directly forbidden in marriage like the Canaanites and a bunch of other nations. But there is this implication that you're not allowed to go back to Egypt for anything. But at the same time, a person who commits themselves to Yahweh, in a way, trumps all laws. Whatever laws are forbidden that God commands become trumped because obviously you're not allowed to marry a Canaanite, but yet Rahab is commended for her faith and brought into the nation of Israel and never forbidden anything. And so the reality is this is kind of that gray area. It's pre-law The law never directly forbidden Egyptian marriages, yet at the same time, you're not allowed to go back to Egypt for anything, and yet at the same time, being in Egypt is not good, but at the same time, God is bringing him to Egypt intentionally, and so it's just kind of one of those things that it is what it is and what God is doing at this moment in Joseph's life. And so he marries, and he has two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is the firstborn. And it communicates the idea of, I have forgotten my past life. My past life is all that pain, all that suffering. This child represents a new life. Not that he literally forgets, but that I'm moving on. Uh, All that pain, all that suffering, all that rejection means nothing now because I have a family, I have a kid, and I'm seeing the completion of God's plan. And then the name Ephraim looks forward to the future, the blessings that God is going to provide him. And so both the names of his kids communicate this idea that I am where I'm supposed to be, and my past is making me who I am, and I am blessed. And I don't need to dwell on the pain and the suffering of the past. And so everything in here just really shows the maturity of Joseph, of a man who knows exactly why he is where he is, He has not shook his fist at God in bitterness of 13 years of slavery and imprisonment. And he truly sees God at work to say, I'm blessed. I mean, I've only really had a position of power and blessing for a couple years, but that's what I'm choosing to focus on and all the years that I've had nothing. And that's really key 
to Joseph's mentality and his attitude, especially when the past is going to come flooding back in a couple years. Because in the two years that he's forgotten, and then now two years later at least, because he has two kids, that he is now moving beyond the past, two years later, or in the, the, probably about the time that Ephraim is a little baby, the past is all going to come back in the form of ten brothers. And it specifically says, he began to remember. Now, remember, that doesn't mean like, oh, I have forgotten because of a lobotomy and now it's all coming back. <laughs> the idea is just, I don't think about that every day because it's not a pain, a wound anymore. And now all those memories of like reflecting on your past are coming flooding back. And so he becomes promoted. And so they go into the seven years of abundance, just as the dreams predicted through God's revelation. And when the famine was, while the famine was over all the earth, verse 56, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians. The famine was severe throughout the land of Egypt, and people from every country came to Joseph in Egypt to buy, buy grain, because the famine was severe throughout the earth. And so that's how it ends. It ends with Joseph's rise to power. He has successfully and wisely administrated the house of Pharaoh, just like he had administrated the house of Potiphar, and he has collected all the rain, grain, and when we get to the end of the book, you're going to get the implication that it was enough to take care of everybody in the seven years of famine. Even though chapter 45, I think it is, is going to spend a lot more time on the famine, chapter 41 ends with a discussion of the famine in order to prepare you for the brothers.